Turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And we won't finish chapter 11 tonight, but we'll get mighty close. But we're going to spend the majority of our time in the first nine verses. And this is the last story in what you might call the primeval history of the book of Genesis. There's really two major divisions to the book of Genesis. And the first is called primeval history, as distinct from medieval or coeval history. So this is before the age that we live in now. And that covers chapters 1 through 11. And then you have what's called patriarchal history which is from chapter 12 to chapter 50, and that deals with the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We'll see Judah a little bit in there. But these are the two major divisions, and we're coming to the end of the first one tonight. We'll be a little bit in chapter 11 but next week, but that just serves to introduce what we're going to get to in chapter 12. So this is the last piece of world history that the Bible gives us before we begin to focus almost exclusively on the children of Israel and then, of course, on the church in the New Testament. And last week, we took a look at the table of nations in chapter 10. Do you remember that? That big, long list of names and their sons and the tribes and where they settled and where the descendants of Noah spread throughout the world. And chapter 11 is perhaps not chronologically after chapter 10, but it, it serves to explain how did we get to where we are in chapter 10. So it, it sort of shows you where we're going to end up, and then it explains how we got there. It's sort of like a great movie that maybe will show you the ending, and then the whole thing is about, well, wait a minute, how are we going to get there? So this is explaining why we have the nations that we have. And there's a great lesson to be learned in this story as well. Have you never noticed that secularists, people who deny the existence of God, who deny the value of religion, who deny that there's anything to be redeemed or reclaimed from the Christian faith in particular, they tend to be kind of snobby in the way they analyze history. You know, they, they look at the way the world is gone and everything was a mistake until their generation, you know. Everybody was an idiot until you got to us. The Middle Ages weren't the Middle Ages. They were the Dark Ages because everybody was a Christian then. And then, oh, finally, we get some people that decided they're not going to believe in God anymore. That's where civilization begins. But it really didn't get going until, well, I, I guess until I published my first book sometimes is the way it goes, you know. But you've even seen this on a smaller level. Every atheist I've ever met thinks that he or she is fighting some fight that no one else is willing to fight. The, you've ever heard them say the, the tough questions that people are afraid to ask. It's like, yeah, we ask those questions, but we've come to answers to those questions. And they think, I am the only one, me and my buddies online are the only ones brave enough to cast off all the restraints of religion. It feels like everybody who went to college had a, a phase where they were like that. But what we see in the Bible and throughout history is that humanism, with a capital H, the idea that man is the measure of all things, that we are just the bee's knees, the best thing the world has ever seen, that's not new. That's not a new idea. It's, it's often marketed as a new idea because people 
love to feel like they're coming up with something brand new, but it's actually been around almost since the beginning. What people will call liberation is actually rebellion, and there's nothing new about that. The simple fact is the Lord is the true ruler of the earth, and he remains the ruler of the earth. So when people begin to raise themselves up against him, they don't last. And like it says in Psalm 37, you look at them one minute, they're there, and you look again, and they're gone. So every new generation feels like they're rediscovering that rebellion of God. But in Psalm chapter 2, you get God's perspective on all that. And I think this is an outstanding parallel passage to what we're going to study tonight. Psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I'm sure you've heard people say things like that. We've got to get rid of this religious stuff. Then we can finally have the utopia we've all been hoping for. But it says in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord's like, you can rage all you want. You can pass all the resolutions you want. You can burn all the Christians at the stake you want. I am the one who is deciding who's going to be king over this world. And his name is Jesus Christ. But we see this at the Tower of Babel, that mankind raised its fist against the Lord, collectively, as a group. And for that, the Lord scattered them throughout the world. God will not be mocked by his creation for long. He is patient and he is kind. But we ought to know by now that when people say, God can't sink this boat, <laughs> the boat's going to sink. Because the Bible says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. But more than that, it's not, you know, some arrogant pride contest between God and man. The Lord knows that when we set ourselves up as our own gods, when we decide we're going to be the new measure of righteousness, that never leads to a good place. It always leads to disaster. And what we're going to see in this story and throughout Scripture as we look at it tonight is that the Lord is constantly working to restrain evil in the world. And that if he didn't restrain evil, it would go very bad very quickly. And that when the day comes when the Lord finally stops restraining evil, it's going to be very, very bad. So let's read this. Verses 1 through 9. You've heard this story, I'm sure, countless times, even when you were a little kid. But let's try and hear it with fresh ears today. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, 
so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right. After the flood, the descendants of Noah had landed in the mountains of Ararat, which is up towards modern-day Turkey, and it says they migrated from the east. Now that word from the east is mikedem in Hebrew, and that word for from the east is min, and so you put it with east and it becomes mikedem. That could mean from the east or towards the east or in the east. It's, it's sort of unclear, but we know where they ended up. So it, it seems what he's trying to say is they moved eastward because they end up in the plains of Shinar. So you can see in our map here, Mount Ararat is up here in the mountains. Down here is Babylon, which is Babel. So they came down this way. It's, it's quite a trek. But you can understand why they would do that, because in the Armenian mountains, it's rugged terrain. It's a hard place. And they're going to come down into what is famously called the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia. They're going to search for the best land they could look for, and they're going to settle there. Little note, historians and archaeologists have recognized that the beginning of civilization was in Mesopotamia. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us, which should be no surprise to us because it's the word of God. And they make their way down there. It says the whole earth had one language and the same words. Makes sense because we were down to eight people not too long ago. Now, we're not sure exactly how long after the flood this was, but it does say that the dispersal of the nations that we read about in chapter 10 has not happened yet. So this is kind of a flashback, you could say. The Lord had told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was back in chapter 9, verse 1, the day they got off the ark. But we see that at first they refused to obey this command. Now the question that is worth asking, although I think the answer is clear, is, is this every single person who is alive at this point? Because at this point in the game, Noah would still have been alive. Because Noah, remember, lived for 350 years after the flood. And it seems odd to consider Noah being a part of this story. But it does seem pretty clear that this is just about everybody. That the family is sticking together. They've just come down out of those mountains. They've had probably a long, harrowing journey. And they get down to a place where it's nice. And they decide that they're going to stay there. And it seems that what caused them to stay, what... what prompted this idea in their mind is what we see in verse 3. They said, let's make bricks and burn them. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So these bricks are these fire-hardened bricks, similar to what we use today. It's actually funny because you read it in Hebrew and it says, come, let us make bricks. It's like, let us brick bricks together. They've got these bricks, which are more sophisticated than the stones that would be gathered by different cultures or by the different grasses and mud that would be used to build. They've got bricks and they've got bitumen. I didn't know exactly what that word meant, but it, it's tar. It's the same stuff we use to make asphalt. You know that smell when you reseal your driveway? That's bitumen. It's tar. And it seemed that they, they came upon these naturally occurring fossil fuels. So they're not only able to build, but they're able to build lasting structures. 
For example, in Egypt, the bricks they used were made of mud and straw and things like that. And so over time, they erode and they're not going to last. But now they've got technology that will allow them to build things that will last. And so they realize we have the capability to build a city for ourselves that could last just about forever. Like Cain was a city builder before the flood. And they decide to disobey the Lord. They had been told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they say, let's build a city and a tower, lest we be dispersed. With the explicit purpose, we don't want to be scattered like God said. So let's build a city. And they plan it with a tower with its top in the heavens. They're trying to, it says, make a name for themselves. This is vainglory. That's a word we don't use very much, but it's a good word. Vainglory. It's not just being vain. It's, I want other people to glory in who I am. We're going to build something that will last forever, and everyone's going to talk about how great we are, and we're going to be the, the lords of the earth. Now, this tower was probably and I say probably because we can't know for certain, probably very similar to the Sumerian culture's ziggurats. Have you ever heard of these? This is what's called a ziggurat. This was the architecture and the style of that culture in that day. So probably what they're looking to build is something like that, that stair-step pyramid-looking thing. And they're saying, let's build one of these with its top in the heavens. We know from history and archaeology that there was one that was built, and we cannot know, and it's probably not the case that this was the same one we're reading about here. But there was one called Etemenanki, and it was a 300-foot-high ziggurat. And there were others. And if this is what we have here, and I, I'm inclined to think that this is, because this is the kind of thing we found in the same area, these were built with those big, flat platforms on top for the purpose of worship. They would go up and they would do stargazing and they would have altars that were built to the stars and the hosts of heaven and not necessarily to the stars themselves, but the gods that they thought the stars represented. That is historically what happened. It is not clear in this text if that's what they're planning to do. But at least what they're trying to do is to defy God. It seems less about let's go and worship the stars and more about let's go and make ourselves great. We'll, we'll build something so big it'll last forever. Very similar in a lot of ways to what Satan said. I will ascend to be like the most high, right? Now let's clear a weird thing up. There's several weird things with the story of the Tower of Babel, but let's clear up one weird thing. We read back in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, about a guy named Nimrod. Do you remember him? Nimrod. He was the grandson of Ham, so that would make him the great-grandson of Noah. Noah had a son named Ham. Ham had a son named Cush. Cush had a son named Nimrod. And he's one of the few people in that big, long table of nations who got extra information given about him. And it said that he was a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the implication there, based on the, the term mighty man that would come later, is not just that he was a, he had a lot of bucks hanging from his wall, but that he was a hunter and a slayer of men is the implication there. And that the beginning of his kingdom, it says, was Babel. 
So this was the guy, remember he founded all those big cities that we still know about today? Sort of the first major king after the flood, you could say. And then his kingdom began, according to chapter 10, in Babel. So it stands to reason by connecting these two passages that Nimrod may have been the individual spearheading this effort. Makes good biblical sense, even though it doesn't say in chapter 11 specifically. And this is important. A lot of times we want to blame one person for something that we all did. It's like, well, he was the boss. Like, yeah, but you all did it. But I need to take the time to quickly debunk some weird ideas that have grown up around Nimrod. There was a book written in 1853 called Two Babylons. And they took this guy Nimrod. And they just went wild, like the weirdest internet conspiracy theory you've ever heard in a book that the church took very seriously. They had all kinds of strange ideas, all speculative ideas. One was that he was a Nephilim, like we talked about before, that he was the son of a demon and a woman, and that therefore he was a giant, and that's why he was such a great hunter. That they've identified the name of his wife, who was a, a historical figure named Semiramis, although she was Greek and although she historically lived a thousand years after Nimrod did. And that together they created a demonic religious system based around the Tower of Babel. And they go into detail about what they were doing. Like they can tell you exactly what was going on up there on the top of the Tower of Babel and all kinds of weird things about the Zodiac and what they were wearing. No lie, like you get in all kind of crazy stuff. And according to that book, Nimrod's religion that he created at the Tower of Babel is still prevalent today in every religion around the world. And that book was used primarily as an assault on the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Churches, and the Anglican Church, of course, in England. And they were saying what they're doing, they think they're worshiping the Lord, but actually they're doing all these things that Nimrod invented back at the Tower of Babel. Based on the, the looks you all are giving me, I think you understand what I'm about to say. None of that has any grounding in Scripture whatsoever. We have five verses about Nimrod. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, we have no verses about Nimrod. But some people, when they pick an idea up, they'll just run with it. And it can go crazy. And it's, it's been, there are people, there are Christians, there are theologians who should know better that have quoted from that guy. And these ideas have kind of passed into common Christian knowledge, unfortunately. Well, like, was it, didn't Nimrod, didn't he invent like the, the world religion or something? I, what do I always say? What does it say? It doesn't say any of that. It says he was a king and a conqueror. And we can rightfully assume that he had a hand at what was going on here. But to then go off and say, and we know what they were doing and what they were saying and what his wife's name was and it, it, it draws a lot more on world mythology than it does from Scripture, which should raise a few red flags for us there. But you can see for yourself what the text says, and there's really no warrant to go beyond it ever, right? We should never try to go beyond the text, especially to establish something like that. I place zero confidence, and you should too, I place zero confidence in accusations of secret Satanism. I've heard this a thousand, if you've heard this, if you do that, you're actually worshiping Satan. Or if you worship on Sunday, you've actually taken the mark of the beast. You know, I, I <laughs> that's never how it works. I, 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 
I always want to defend against that because there are solid, well-meaning Christians that want to do well, that get folks that will come and put a trip on you, that tell you, did you know that if you do that, it's, it's actually paganism, and you've got, to, you've got to read their four or five books, and you've got to make a couple of very important turns. If you go left rather than going right, you probably won't arrive at the same conclusions. Just watch out for that weird stuff, especially when you're, you're strolling through YouTube and you're looking up theology videos, because as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4, he told Timothy, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Speculation. When folks say, I've got half a verse that might mean this. But if it does, then it opens up this whole world of weirdness that I've invented. Look out for that kind of stuff. Most of you have probably never heard of this, and that's for the best. Those of you who have, just look to your scripture. Look to your Bible. Read your Bible for yourself. There's no secret methods of interpreting scripture. If someone comes up to you and says, well, you need three or four extra books in order to get what it really means, even if that person says they're a Christian, don't waste your time. Just look to what the Word of God is saying. So let's leave that aside. Let's move on. We're going to leave the conspiracy theories behind because there's plenty for us to learn from this passage and there's plenty of sin for us to address in this passage without inventing more. Namely, it's the sin of arrogance before God. There was probably idolatry going on at this thing, but the text doesn't focus on that. It focuses more on the fact that people were setting themselves up as an idol to themselves. And that's a big threat, isn't it? Because no one that you know, unless maybe they've come from a foreign land, is setting up little statues in their house that they bow down to and pray to. But many people have set themselves up as the God of their own life. And that is something we've got to hear. The Lord comes down to this city. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? We're going to build a tower that's going to reach to heaven. But in order to get there, God's got to come down. It didn't quite make it to heaven. And he looks at what they're doing, and he foresees trouble coming mostly from the fact that they are unified in speech and in purpose. Let's read that verse again in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, of course, God desires us to fill the world, to make something of it. That was kind of the first thing God said to Adam, right? Go out into this world I've made and make something out of it. And it's not that God is afraid of people, or that God just is a killjoy and doesn't want us to make anything great. The Lord knows that that amazing potential that he has put into the heart and the hands of man has been tainted and corrupted by sin. So now that incredible potential is not just the incredible potential for accomplishment and for good, but there is incredible potential to use that accomplishment for wickedness. And that potential is dangerous. When people are united without the Bible to unite them, without a shared loyalty to God, without the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, without any of that, the collective united efforts of men can yield some terrifying results. We as people have created some beautiful things. The positive potential 
of humanity, you could say. The Hagia Sophia, a beautiful cathedral. It's amazing. You look at that and it's like, this was before electricity. They built this thing. Or the music of Beethoven or Bach or any of those guys. You listen to it and you're like, that's, that's astonishing that we can create that. But we've also invented atom bombs. We've also invented concentration camps. Maybe no less ingenious for us to be able to come up with that. Needs the same amount of potential and thought and planning, but the results are horrifying. And the Lord knew that. And this is what he was foreseeing with these people. He says, if they put their heads together, but they don't put their heads together with me in the middle, this could be trouble. If you want to see this illustrated, look at those nations that have cast off God and his church. I'm talking formally, officially. We want nothing to do with God or any God. We'll rule ourselves. I think the clearest example of this, of course, is Soviet Russia. They're going to get rid of any pretense, any semblance of God. Atheism is the law. You have to renounce your belief in God. And this is how we're going to run our country. And then what did you get? Gulags, which is a fancy word for concentration camp. Mass starvation. Those belligerent wars. The people starving. The oppression. The harshness. You remove God and a union of people becomes deadly. When God's not in the middle, the concerted efforts of people can be terrible. Because Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things, I love the way the ESV puts it, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is sick. Sort of how Paul describes in Romans 7, right? I want to do this, but I don't do it, and I don't want to do this, but I do it. Your heart is sick. Who can understand the heart of man? And then when you combine those sick hearts together and there's no mitigating influence of God in there, you're going to get in trouble. This is true in your personal life too. It's not just true of nations. You remove God from his place of authority, your potential is horrible to consider. What one person can do when they decide, I'm not going to care what's right or wrong anymore. That's a dangerous person. You cast off the rule of God, all of a sudden adultery is permissible. Lying is just normal. It's just what people do. Violence is justified. Murder is a non-issue because there's no authority other than me. I decide what's right for myself. And we dress that up and make it look all cute. And we put little cartoons on it that you've got to make your own way and find your own truth and set your own path. But the minute somebody actually does that, we lock them up for life because that person can't be allowed to be around people. This is, of course, not to say that everybody that says that or every atheist is a, is a psychopath. Obviously not. But when you have removed God from your philosophy, you have also removed any mandate towards love or righteousness or justice. Anything other than preference. Say, I don't believe in God, but I'm a good person. Well, why? Well, because I love people. But why would you love people? Just the right thing to do. Well, you just told me there's no such thing as God or anything transcendent. So is that just your preference? Well, society dictates. Society has dictated some horrible things. The Assyrians, the Huns, the Nazis. You can't leave it up to society. Well, we voted. Yeah, that, that doesn't work either. You can't remove God. People have talked about the need to remove the conscience of, of people. People have that weird guilt complex, and we've got we've to get rid of it. You don't want to remove the conscience from people. People get always irritated at, 
at Christians or, or the moral voice. Politicians especially will get mad at Christians who just can't see the big picture. Don't you get what's going on? If we do that, then this nation over here will invade and these people are going to be disrupted and I've got to keep them down and you want to come here and you want to talk about what? But we need that. Your conscience is a roadblock to keep you from going off a cliff. And so the Lord sees them here. He sees that these people have decided we're not going to do what God said. We're going to build a monument to ourselves and we're going to do whatever we want. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Oh, it sounds very poetic. But the Lord knew there was trouble ahead. So what does God decide to do? He decides he is going to restrain humanity from that dastardly potential. He, he says, I'm not going to permit it to go that far. I see where this ends. You might not be able to see the end, but God does. And so he says, I'm going to put a stop to this. And if it were not for the restraining power of God, who knows where we would be. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You might want to turn to this passage because it's very, very important. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8. In this passage, as you're turning there, Paul is discussing the Antichrist. The Thessalonians were afraid that they had missed the rapture, basically. They believed that they were living in the day of the Lord. They believed that judgment was coming, the apocalypse had begun, and Paul writes this letter, among other things, to calm them down. <laughs> He says, no, 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 and he gives a long list of things that have to happen before that or, or things that will happen on that day. And he describes the Antichrist. He says, guys, there's going to be a, a tyrannical world leader that's going to be executing Jews and Christians, you know. And, but he says in verse 6, this is an interesting passage, in that context, he says, and you know what is restraining him. Restraining who? Restraining the evil one, the Antichrist. Who, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That is, if the devil could do it today, he'd do it today. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Read that again. The one who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So what Paul is saying is calming the Thessalonians down. You have not missed the rapture. The end is, is coming, but it's not here yet. And he says, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. If the devil could do it now, he would. But he says that there is someone that is restraining him. And that the restrainer will continue to restrain, it says, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Paul says that there is a restrainer. Now, who is that restrainer? Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, it's obviously the Holy Spirit, because the only one powerful enough to restrain Satan is God. But it says, until he is out of the way. Is the Holy Spirit ever not going to be omnipresent on the earth? No. So we believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit specifically at work in the church. The Holy Spirit's influence and power executed through the church. Now, one day, that's going to be out of the way. And there are people that understand that differently, but I think that's one of the clearest references we have to what we call the rapture, that the Lord will remove his people before the end comes. And there's other reasons to believe that, but I think that's a pretty clear example. But however you work that out, 
The theological point is that God works to slow down the progress of evil in the world, just as he did here in Babel. And that if God didn't restrain evil, things would get out of control quickly. Consider your life. You ever found yourself heading down a road only to have God yank you by the collar and jerk you out of the way? You look at a person that you were pursuing, a relationship you were trying to have, a girlfriend you wanted, and it just falls to pieces, and then you see her a year or two later, and you go, Lord, I want to I say thank you. You knew, or maybe a friendship that you were cultivating, or bad habits you were starting to get into, and you got caught real early in the process. And you're like, thank you, Lord, for that. The Lord restrains wickedness. It's like when David, David, when he was on the run from Saul in the, in the books of Samuel, he and his men served as security for a flock of sheep. The flocks by a guy named Nabal. And they were taking care of his sheep, making sure nobody could come and steal them or carry them away. And then a feast comes around and David sends a messenger to Nabal and says, hey, we're going to celebrate the feast. We've been taking care of your flocks. Would you mind if we were able to take from the flocks in order to have the feast? And Nabal basically said, I could turn you over to Saul anytime I wanted. So, no, you don't get anything from me. And so David and his mighty men, they mount up, they saddle up, and they form a posse to come and take Nabal out. But Nabal had a beautiful wife named Abigail. And she comes out, and she comes out and bows down before David and says, please don't hurt my husband. He's a fool. He's an idiot. Everybody knows that. Really, his name Nabal means fool. And she goes, and his name is Nabal, and that's kind of what he is. But she said, look, I'll give you everything you need for the feast. I'll take care of it behind his back. He won't know, and it'll be fine. And David says, God bless you for saving me from becoming a murderer this day. That's an example of the kind of restraint that God executes. He sends people or circumstances into your life to keep you from going over the edge. When you get angry and you see red and you're about to do something that you're going to regret, and something just happens that you're not able to act on it. They don't show up to work that day. Maybe you get a flat tire or something like that. Or maybe it's just internal, you know? You have a, a moment of clarity. You're like, what am I doing? That's what the Lord does. The Lord uses nations to restrain nations. He raises up one nation to tear down another nation in order to prevent it from happening. And God himself intervenes at times. And one of those times is here in, in Babel. The danger that we have to avoid is of rejecting the restraint of the Lord, rejecting the rule of the Lord repeatedly to the point where, as it says in Romans 1, he gives us up. There are times where the Lord says, fine, you want a king? Have a king. Fine, you want to worship that? You're going to worship that, but you're going to reap every consequence of it. The Lord doesn't just know what's good for you. You know, the Lord doesn't just know what's right morally. The Lord also knows what's best for you. And God is not out there to ruin your life. He's out there to give you, as Jesus said, an abundant life in John 10.10. And so the Lord says, I see where this is going. I'm going to put a stop to it. And this is what the Lord always does and is currently doing, according to 2 Thessalonians. And the way God's going to do this, he's going to confuse their language. God had told them in chapter 9, disperse, fill the earth, multiply, go about your way. They didn't want to do that, so God says, I'm going to make it easier for you. And he confuses their language. We are not given any hints about the mechanism here, about how this went. I wish we had some. I don't know if they just woke up and they were speaking a language that they understood, but no one else could. 
Like I was speaking Hebrew yesterday, and today I'm speaking Japanese. I don't know how that happens. Maybe it was in the moment. Maybe somebody was yelling at somebody, and then all of a sudden they're speaking English or they're speaking Swahili. I don't know. Pick your language. All we're told is that it happened, that God accelerated the natural diversification of language. And this is very interesting, at least to me, because I'm into this kind of thing. Linguists have identified loosely, there's disagreement over what they are, a handful of what are called proto-languages or root languages. We, we look at all the dozens and hundreds of languages in the world, and they're like, you can trace them back to just a handful of languages. An example for the one we speak, English, is Indo-European is the proto-language there. So you've got all these languages, Polish, Russian, Spanish, Portuguese, English, Swedish. All of those come from the same root language. And you know what's interesting? The language we speak, English, is also similar to Persian, Bengali, Sanskrit, Hindi, the languages they're speaking in India, you can trace their languages back to the same root language that we're speaking today. And it's very far removed. But they get over there and they began to study it a long time ago and they realized this is actually very close to what we have. We talk about romance languages, you know, French and Spanish. Portuguese and Latin. They're all very similar to one another. You speak Portuguese and someone speaks Spanish, you, you might be able to get by because they're so close to each other. Italian is in that same family. English is what's called a Germanic language. It comes from those old German, old English languages. And there are others. Language diversifies. So what it, it seems, and if I had to cast my vote, although I, I'm not going to stand on this with any kind of venom, I think what God did is he took whatever that first language was and broke it into those, those first root languages. Because he knew once they spread out, this was going to happen. <laughs> you were going to get the diversification of language naturally. The Lord scattered their languages. He diversified it. And they say, okay, well, you know what? We can't even understand each other. And you couldn't pull up Duolingo and have the little owl tell you what your neighbor was saying. They didn't have that yet. So... They figured we might as well spread out and go our separate ways, and they did. And that's the beginning of what we call today nations, as we saw outlined in Genesis chapter 10. Several times in chapter 10, it refers to their languages, that they were divided according to their nations and their languages. And this is always what God intended. But I think what God did is he skipped a few steps. I've heard sermons preached on the diversification of languages is a tragic thing, and God only ever intended for there to be one. I don't think so. Similar to the way that God created the genetic code to have all that variety in it. I think it's the same thing with language, that God intended for there to be a variety of languages, a variety of nations. And he just skipped a few steps. Because this is going to happen in a few years anyway, but I'm going to go ahead and jump you all ahead some. The Lord always intended for there to be a variety of cultures and languages to fill his world. Wouldn't it be boring if it was all the same? Anytime anybody comes in and tries to make it all the same, we always look back at what a tragedy that was, don't we? Even if we had no connection to that culture. Consider how different, yet equally splendid, are the skyscrapers of New York and then the palaces of ancient Japan. So different, but they're both awesome. And I don't mean that awesome like cool, bro. I mean like awesome, like you're full of awe when you see them. You look at even the, the Mayan cultures, untouched by what was called the old world forever, but they build these incredible statues and these incredible stoneworks. 
You look at even the, the capacity of all these different nations. You've got folks that lived in the desert and learned how to live in the desert with no water. You've got the Polynesian cultures out in the islands, like the, the Hawaiian islands and the New Zealand and places like that. And some of these islanders, that they were cultures that they could navigate using the water, not the stars, the water. They were so familiar with the way the waves moved and the tides moved and where the islands were, they could sail from one island to the other with no map, no compass, just getting there. And we think, how is that even possible? Because we're not from that culture. You look at the cultures that were the horse people, the Sioux Indians, the Huns that just lived their lives on the backs of horses, the tribes that lived up in Alaska and way far up near the Arctic Circle and lived in the snow all the time. It's all proclaiming the glory of God, the people that are made in the image of God that go around the world and make something of it. It's a beautiful collage, you could say. It says in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John is in heaven and he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Anne asked me before the service, So when we get to heaven, do you think we're going to be speaking our own languages or are we going to all be speaking the same language? I can't say for certain, but I can say that Revelation says from every tongue. Wouldn't that be cool? We're all praising and singing the Lord's glory, but we're using our own tongues and our own languages to do it. We kind of think for some reason, maybe too many cartoons, that the second you get to heaven, everyone's in the same identical clothing and walk in the same identical place. And the, the Lord didn't like that here. Why is he going to like that there? The Lord wants to bring it all together. It's going to be the perfect example of unity of worship, but the variety or the diversity of the way people look and sound and speak. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and he's going to turn us loose to go do it again. As long as we recognize that it's all for the glory of the Lord and that we're all created in the same image of God, it's okay to be excited and be proud of the people and the culture you come from. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's, it's all throughout history. There's always some culture telling some other culture that theirs is no good and they've got to change. But the Lord is like, look, I, I turned you all loose around the world and gave you different languages so that we could see this blossoming and this flowering. And it's unfortunate how much of it was tied with idolatry and with false worship, but someday God's going to get rid of all that. Very exciting to, to think about that. It's okay to be excited about who you are, and where God has placed you. There is biblical mandate for patriotism and loyalty, as long as you don't let it spiral out of control, and now it's just us and nobody else. God didn't even let Israel do that. Let that sink in for a little bit. Now, of course, we know that God turned these nations loose, as he had always intended to do, but because of sin, those nations were not just collectively and separately giving glory to the Lord through their own expression, but they were at each other's throats almost immediately. And that's never going to be, the, the unity and the utopia is never going to be achieved until Jesus comes back. Because sin is at work corrupting everything. So when God sent these nations out, you know as well as I do, pretty much all of them are going to fall away from the Lord. 
because there is also a devilish influence over the world. And the Bible makes it clear that this applies to nations as well as individuals, that the devil and his armies are not just operating on a personal level, trying to get you to take an extra brownie, but that there is a national plan that the enemy is working out. This is what Paul refers to, it's a term you're familiar with, as principalities and powers. And I've got several passages you can look up. We're not going to have time to get into all of them, but it's important to recognize this, that at the birth of all these nations, there was something going on in the angelic realm as well, or that began at this point. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that there are principalities and powers. In Ephesians 6, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now that word, principality and power, it's not talking about like demonic voodoo power. It's talking about a rank or an authority, that kind of power, like a judge has power over you. Daniel chapter 10, verse 20 talks about the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia and the prince of Israel, Michael the archangel. So he's not talking about the actual prince sitting on the throne. He's talking about the angelic overlord, you could say. And that's where that word principality, you can hear the word prince in it, can't you? Daniel is shown in chapters 9 and 10 of his book that there is an angelic dimension. He's seeing all these visions of the nations rising and falling, and he's working in the court of the king of Babylon and then of Persia. But the angels come in and show him there's a whole battle you don't even see, man. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, as far as we can tell, that was at the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. We've talked about that phrase, sons of God, the Bene Elohim. It's the same thing referred to in chapter 6 when it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. That the Lord established nations according to the number of the sons of God, the heavenly host. And Psalm 82 is one of the most interesting psalms in the Bible because it's the Lord chewing out the principalities and powers for being bad rulers of the nations that he put them over. That's where you get that phrase, I said you are gods, but you're going to die like men. He says, I set you up. I set you up as rulers over these people to establish justice and appoint them to me. And instead, you usurped that authority for yourself and set yourself up as a god. And there, there's a couple ideas on that. Either that the Lord, at this point in the Tower of Babel, because of the failure of the people, God sent them out and he said, fine, go worship the host of heaven. Go ahead, have these principalities and powers over you. Or that the Lord established righteous rulership that was corrupted later. And that just depends on whether you believe angels have free will or not, and we're not going to get into that tonight. <laughs> have some fun on your own time. But I will say, always be careful what you Google when you're talking about angels and demons because you can end up in some weird places. Whatever the case, even the nations have been corrupted by sin. However we got there, the nations willingly followed after deceiving spirits and began calling them gods. And this is what would prompt God in chapter 12, not going to get there today, to choose a nation for himself. You read Deuteronomy 32.9. So 32.8, he divided the nations according to the sons of God. In verse 9, he says, but I chose Israel for my inheritance. It's kind of God's way of saying to Satan, you get everybody and I'll get Abraham and we'll see who wins. 
We'll see who wins in the end. And he chose Abraham not as a competition against the other nations, but in order to redeem the other nations. That word nations in Hebrew is goyim. That's a word that's still used today. It's a Yiddish word that comes from Hebrew, and it means nations or Gentiles. So when you get into the New Testament and you're talking about the Gentiles, that word is ethne, where we get the word for ethnic from, or ethnicity. The Lord said, I'll pick my nation. These are all the other nations, and I'm going to use this nation to get back all these other nations. Which is why when Jesus rose again from the dead, he sent out his church in Matthew 28, and he said, make disciples of all what? Nations. Go get them all. Go take back what's rightfully the Lord. It's one heart at a time. And then in Pentecost, at Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them like a mighty rushing wind, and they began to speak in other what? Tongues. And people from all over the world heard the church proclaiming the great things of God in their own tongue. Sort of a reverse Tower of Babel situation. Because the Lord is, is sending a message I'm going out to all these nations. It's not just about this one. It's about all of them. You were separated because of your sin, but I'm going to bring you back because of my grace. And the Lord, he always had a plan here. He always had a plan to redeem the nations. We saw that back in chapter 3. But the first thing he's going to do here is inaugurate the rise of nations and restrain their wickedness so that they don't fall to pieces. And he's going to give them space and time to repent, as he always does. He's our faithful, patient Lord. And it says there in verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel. I think it's really funny that the Hebrew word Babel is very similar to our English word Babel, which means to talk incoherently, because that's kind of what happened there. That's not what it meant in Hebrew. It says, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So that word Babel means confusion. It's a little etymology here. That word to confuse in Hebrew is balal. And if you were going to turn the word confuse into confusion, the word would be balbel. And then over time, as language often does, it changes. You drop that middle L and you get babel, which is the Hebrew for confused or confusion because the languages were confused. Later on, Babel would claim that their, their name meant babel, which means gate of the gods. But the Lord here in chapter 11 is like, that's not what it means. <laughs> I like that. He's like, no, no, no. You, that's your name because I confused your languages. And it says they left off building the city. It is interesting. I noticed this for the first time. In verse 5, it says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And then in verse 8, they left off building the city. So the question I had was, did they finish building the tower but not the city? Did they not finish both of them? I had always assumed they didn't finish either one, but I don't know, maybe you could read it that they did finish the tower, and the Lord's like, nice tower. I'm going to change your languages so that none of you stay here. And what's obvious is that while the whole world abandoned Babel, there were those who stayed and built up what would end up being the city and the empire of Babylon. And Babylon, of course, was the historic enemy of Israel. You know that if you've read your Bible a little bit, that Judah, the southern kingdom, would be exiled for 70 years in Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, carry off its people. Ezekiel prophesied 
from Babylon. Daniel prophesied from Babylon. Figures very, very much in the Old Testament. But there is something else that begins here in this passage that I want to talk about. And I realize we're getting into a lot of things that we can't dive fully into, but it's important for us to be exposed to them here because it's so important. Babylon in the Bible becomes a picture of rebellion and idolatry against the Lord. You compare somebody to Babylon in one of the prophetic books, it's not a good comparison, you know. And if you read through the prophetic passages in the Bible, there seems to be a future role for Babylon in the end as well. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 17. Book of Revelation, of course. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. This is the end of the world. And we see in verses 1 through 6 here. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So obviously a very symbolic picture here. The angel tells him at the beginning, the prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So this is not a literal woman that he's describing. He's describing a city, as we see in chapter 18, I'll get there in a minute, that will be the seat of the Antichrist's kingdom. That beast with the seven heads and ten horns, we see that a lot in the Bible. And it refers to that empires that have ruled the world. And the last one is the Antichrist's empire. And we see that this city is characterized by great wealth, by sexual immorality, by idolatrous worship, by persecution of the church, and the Jews, we can add that as well. And it's called Babylon. Flip over to chapter 18, read the first three verses there. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And it goes on. That chapter describes the fall of Babylon. And immediately after that, you get the return of Jesus when he comes and cleans house. But it's very interesting that not just here, but other places in the Bible as well, Zechariah in particular, describes that last empire, that last kingdom, that last city of the last Antichrist as Babylon. And that is very interesting in the Bible because you can almost see that the first 
worldly, one world rebellion against the Lord was at Babylon, and so is the last one at Babylon. And, of course, the question becomes, well, is this real Babylon, or does Babylon represent something else? And uh, that's a discussion for another time, too, because there is so much scripture to include. If you want to talk about who Babylon is or who the final empire is, you've got to basically read half your Bible to make sure you're including all the information. And I, I can just summarize some of the options for you. I think the, the leading ideas here are that this is actually Babylon, because a lot of times when the Bible says Bethlehem, it means Bethlehem. You know, when it says Babylon, it means Babylon. And we say, well, Babylon has been destroyed. There is no Babylon today. Well, there's no temple either, but we know in the book of Revelation, there will be a temple that the Antichrist is going to go into, and he's going to blaspheme, and he's going to profane. So could there be a rebuilt city of Babylon? It could be a symbolic name for whatever the Antichrist's kingdom's capital city is. Rome is the most likely candidate put out, if that's the way that you're going to go about it. And I have heard other options ranging from New York City to Mecca to Berlin to London to just about anybody that somebody doesn't like. They can make it the Antichrist city. But I again call us back to 2 Thessalonians where Paul tells them to chill out with trying to identify that stuff because the restrainer is at work. And until the restrainer is removed, it will be cloaked in mystery. It said this is a name of what? Mystery. And don't worry, when the day comes, it will be revealed, and there will be no doubt what it's referring to. And we read in the book of Revelation that the people will rally and unite in one world, one currency, one army against the Lord and his purposes. And that's, <laughs> that, that's not calling out free trade agreements. What that's calling out is what we see here in the Tower of Babel. We will rule ourselves. And specifically, they're going to follow the Antichrist, the beast, as John likes to call him, and Daniel as well. And there's a lot to get into there. But what it amounts to is that when the Lord finally removes his hand and says, you all do it your way, they immediately go back to what they tried to do at the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament to unite together against the Lord for their own sake. And it becomes the most calamitous seven years the world will ever know. Most of God's judgment in the end of the world is just letting people do their thing. And that's something. But I want to caution all of you against becoming speculative in this stuff. Every generation, it seems, has figured out who it is. We know a few things about end times prophecy. Number one is don't ever try to set a date for the rapture. Because Jesus came out and said, nobody knows. I don't even know. So don't come at me and say, when he said you can't know, he really meant you could know. No. We know not to assign a name to the Antichrist. <laughs> that, is a, that is a bad idea, isn't it? Just about every president since John Adams has been called the Antichrist. Everybody liked George Washington, and after that, Antichrist. And... Don't try to identify with certainty what Babylon is, because it says it's a mystery. There are certain things that the Lord has intentionally cloaked in mystery. There's a lot of things, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't study these things and you shouldn't try to understand them. God didn't write them there so that we wouldn't read it and that we wouldn't try to learn from it. But we got to keep the big picture in mind, that God's in control, and he's got this. 
and that we belong not to that kingdom, we belong to his kingdom. Amen? And this is what he had to do, to restrain the wickedness of the Tower of Babel, and he will continue restraining that wickedness until the end comes. And then the next thing he'll do to intervene will be when Jesus returns, riding on that horse with the blood-stained robe and the sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the wicked. That's awesome. Verse 10 here back in chapter 11. We're just going to read this and come to the end. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. We talked about him last time. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived uh, 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. You might want to circle that name, Abram. He's going to come back, in case you didn't know that. Well, with the scattering of the nations, you come to the end of primeval history and the end of our latest Toledoth section. You probably see that. In uh, verse 10, we begin a new Toledoth. It says, the generations of Shem. And we've seen this several times. This is how Genesis organizes itself with, these are the generations, the Toledoth in Hebrew. Now the, we're going to see the Bible is going to narrow the scope of its history from everybody to one son of Noah and to one family of one son of Noah and then eventually to one son, Abram. And we're going to follow him from there. Did you see how the ages of these men are decreasing, by the way? It went from Noah living 950 years to Terah, who lived a measly 119 years, I think it was. And the point of all this is to get us to Abraham, and he's going to be our focus for the next several months. A lot to unpack in this story. I was telling Jacob before we started, there's probably a book's worth of material in the story of the Tower of Babel. The main thing for us to draw from this is a warning against casting off God's authority in order to set yourself up as the God of your own life. We maybe have increased technologically, but we have not increased morally. Well, we've created bricks and bitumen. We should make something that will last forever. What do we need God for? We say things like, well, we've got electricity and medicine, and we've been to space. What do we need God for? We don't need to believe in healing anymore. We've got medicine. You've heard this before. But we're still dependent upon God. Don't believe the hype. And we are to submit to the fatherly hand of God as the Lord uses you as salt and light to restrain the evil in the people around you. Because as Peter said in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we touched on several times tonight, someday God is going to remove the restraint. History will hurtle towards a tragic climax, but until that time, it is the Lord's kindness leading us to repentance. So don't tune out. Oh, Jesus is coming back. What do I need to do anything for? Not at all. Redeem the time you've been given. Let your life glorify the Lord so that he's not having to grab you by the collar. But as he said to the psalmist, let me just guide you with my eye. Isn't that a better way to live?